Welcome to The Defiant Spirit, a podcast where we explore ancient mystical ideas, modern therapeutic tools, timeless spiritual practices, and inspirational examples of how to defy life's darkness when it descends upon our lives, transforming it through the light of the defiant power of the human spirit, the spirit within you, waiting to be discovered, awakened, and lived in all aspects of your life. I'm Rabbi B. Welcome to the Defiant Spirit, and now, on to our podcast. Welcome back to the Defiant Spirit. I am honored and privileged that you tuned in, that you want to listen to this, or you keep tuning in and you continue to listen to The Defiant Spirit. I'm going to really start wrapping it up here on the conceptual side. I wanted to lay the foundation of some of these ideas of The Defiant Spirit, weaving together logotherapy, meaning-centered therapy. Um, The father of logotherapy is Dr. Viktor Frankl, who I talk a lot about, and then Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, which is the soil out of which I really have come. And the Enneagram, which we'll be talking about in the coming episodes. I'm a huge fan and practitioner and teacher of the Enneagram. And lots of other isms. I'm a mindfulness meditation practitioner coming out of the Buddhist tradition. I'm formally studying right now um, Buddhism. So spiritual mutt. That's pretty much what I am. That's pretty much what this is. Best practice. I don't care what you call it. I don't care where it comes from. Does it work? Is it good? Will it help me live a meaningful and good life? That's really all I care about and all I care about for other people and guiding them and sharing these ideas. I'm not waiting till this um, defiant spirit is fully baked to share it because you all are helping me shape it. I'm writing it as a book, um, but it is changing forms and some of it's making its way into the podcast. Some of it's not really going to be just continuously using this as a laboratory for the defiant spirit lived in real life because that's what this is about. I'm not interested in theory. I'm interested in how does it help us live a better life. So we're going to get into practical stuff in the coming episodes. But um, this one, let's just transition a little bit from theory to practical. And let's continue on the journey, the theme. If you are just joining us, we've been talking a lot about superheroes, the the origin of superhero stories as we know them in America or in the West or in the 2022, Superman and Batman and Spider-Man and all of the great man, men and women who we call superheroes on the big screen grew out of a response to the Holocaust, um, not by any old group, but by young Jews who were really reacting or responding to what they saw the darkness descending across Europe. You can listen all about it and creating superheroes. Um, So I want to continue down this path, but again, not fiction or theory, but real life, because superheroes on the big screen may be fiction. But in our lives, as I talked about last time, very real. There are superheroes all around us, and there's a superhero within us. And he or she is not somebody who wears a cape and tights and jumps over large buildings. Nothing against people who wear tights and wear capes and try to jump over large buildings, but that's not what it takes to be a superhero. What it means to be a superhero is to be supernatural. And what it means to be supernatural is to overcome our nature, to confront our nature and defy our nature. Because in the end of the day, that's the greatest power that we have. 
And I want to um, really expand and explore this. In my, in my work in guiding people, what I see over and over again, it's not the macro that can ruin a person, um, that can cause somebody suffering. Of course it can. What do I mean by macro? Geopolitical turmoil, you know, what's happening right now between China and America, what's happening in the Middle East, um, add into it, you know, environmental issues, racism, all of these things are real. And some are, you know, more personal than others and do impact us in direct ways. And yet at the end of the day, I don't care what color you are, what sex you are, what gender you are, what nationality you are. Most of life's suffering comes from interpersonal relationships, struggles in our relationships, um, feeling of meaninglessness, not finding our meaning, struggles at work. But these are micro. They may not be micro to you, they're micro to the world, right? What you're going through in your relationship with your spouse is micro to the world. It's macro to you, but that's the point. That's the stuff that when I eulogize somebody at their funeral, I talk about. I don't talk about world peace. I talk about peace in their home or the lack of peace in their home. And, you know, honestly, saying it in a respectful way, but talking about a person's struggles and what they did struggle with and what they confronted and what they overcame. So as we go through this, the defiant power of the human spirit is a very su real supernatural power, but it's, it's within you. It's how do you face your nature and what particularly you struggle with. As I shared in the last episode, I couldn't be an alcoholic if I tried. And I did try in my college years. I drank a lot, enough to be you know, considered an alcoholic, except contextually it made sense. It was appropriate to some degree. Um, and I never, ever once battled with alcohol because it's just for a thousand reasons, not mine in this lifetime. Maybe I'm not wired that way. I don't, I don't know. I can't explain it. I have my issues and I, and I share them and I will share them with you. That's not one of them. Now, I have a good friend who has um, been in recovery for like 20 years now. That is his, one of his shadows, one of the, um, of the uh, tests that he faced in this lifetime. His nature is towards alcoholism. So for him to not drink and for me to not drink are two separate things. For him, it's heroic and it truly is heroic. He's, it's supernatural because his nature, and he still says to this day, everything in him makes him want to drink. It's not that he's not interested in it. It's that he, he now can go, and I've met him um, in settings where they serve alcohol, and he can be there now. But there was a point in time when he absolutely could not. So for him to overcome that is truly supernatural. It's it's, it's heroic and it needs to be recognized as such. And for me to refrain is not. So what's your nature? That's what I want to talk about. What is it that you face that you have to overcome? And, and why do you do it? And if you aren't yet doing it or if you've fallen um, out of recovery and you are back again struggling with your particular, and it doesn't, doesn't have to be alcohol. There's a thousand things we could talk about. When we struggle with our nature, how can you get back on the wagon? How can you get back to your center, to get soul-centered, to do this work? That's where we need and when we need the defiant power of the human spirit, as Dr. Frankel talks about and what we've been talking about. And again, not just summoning the, um, bat, you know, the Batman 
with the bat signal, but the Batman, the Batwoman within you calling out to them to show up um, the best of you to fight this fight. So one of the things that I've learned from my time studying Dr. Frankel, Logotherapy, and reading and rereading his works, especially Man's Search for Meaning, if you haven't read it, it's a must read, um, is bread. Let's, let's talk about bread. Bread is a really interesting thing. I was just in a um, discussion group, the class I'm in, and one of the women just started really expounding on making bread. It's her thing. And I was just amazed at how everybody in the room resonated with what she was talking about, the spiritual experience of bread making. If any of you have ever made bread, um, I've kind of done it. I really haven't done justice to it. But I can understand why it's such a profound experience. And we were talking about it from a spiritual practice as as a spiritual practice. And it's like the synthesis of different things because it's tactile, like you have to make it and shape it and form it. You're thinking about all the people that were involved with it um, to get it just to the raw ingredients on the counter that she was working with. Then you make it, then you eat it, you share it, you gather around. People break bread together. Bread is a really powerful symbol throughout history and in our lives. It's why every Sabbath, Jews around the world gather um, around their Sabbath table, their Shabbat table, and they um, eat challah, this braided bread that really has to be made with intentionality. Is that a word, intentionality? Yeah, with intention, intentionality. And I'm not going to get into it, but it, to make it challah isn't just that it's pretty and braided, it's that it has a special intention, and it was designated for this kind of consciousness-raising experience of Shabbat. And so when you go into the Sabbath... Traditionally, you're going in with this intention to overcome our nature. I wasn't planning actually on going down this path, but wherever the uh, Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit takes me, it's oftentimes where I go. That's um, the nature of the Sabbath, of Shabbat, which I am no longer um, observant. I guess I, I am observant, but in my own way. So there was a period of time when I considered myself Shomer Shabbat, when I considered myself um, very observant of Shabbat. Now, to me, it's really about the consciousness. I'll have another conversation about that another time, but I no longer am bound to do that. I'm not leading a congregation, so it's you know my way or the highway, and it's what works for me and my family. And what, what I see Shabbat as, whether it's Friday night to Saturday night, or whether it's Sunday for you if you're Christian, or whether it's Tuesday at, at your lunch break, to me, it does not matter. It's about devoting time to being as conscious as possible. And come Friday night, traditionally, you would refrain from working for, for the next 24 hours. That's one of the defining features of the Sabbath. And you have to have three meals. You have to gather around the table because the table is a consciousness-raising place in the Jewish mystical tradition. As an aside, the second temple was destroyed in the year 70 CE, and there was a conscious decision made by the rabbis not to rebuild the third temple then and there. It was actually not just spiritual because politically and from a power perspective, that wasn't an option. But today it's an option, sort of. Um, and I don't want to get into Middle East politics, but it's still not exercised in no small measure because... Um, the uh, Muslim Arabs have claim to that land. And so there's the, um, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, if you've ever been to Israel. But that's not really the reason, in my opinion, that there's not a third temple. 
I think it's a consciousness shift that the rabbis made to say, instead of rebuilding a big temple in Jerusalem, anywhere Jewish people go, let's build little temples, which is why if you're in a community of any size whatsoever, there's probably a Jewish a Jewish synagogue, which is redundant, but a Jewish temple. Oftentimes it's called like in Omaha Temple Israel or um, Temple Bethel or whatever. And so that's a that's a theological and a spiritual shift because what the rabbi said was anywhere the Jewish people go, that's where we'll make a temple. And so you don't need necessarily one big one in Israel. You need a little one wherever you go. However, truth be told, and this is the shift I've made on my spiritual journey, you don't even need a synagogue. It's not the most important thing in a community. The most important thing from a Jewish perspective is not your synagogue, a synagogue, but your house, your home, your table, the Sabbath table. That is the true holy of holies from a Jewish Kabbalistic mystical perspective. <clears throat> you don't need to belong to a synagogue, although I do encourage it if you find one that's right for you. You don't need to say the traditional prayers, although they may work for some people, but you do need a table of some sort. It can be a card table. It can be a you know, pottery barn table, whatever works for you, you need a table and you need to invite people to your table. I don't care if you're married or if you have kids or whatever. That's not the point. The point is, is that you have to have other around that table um, and resist the temptation like Friday night to Saturday to just continue with the grind, to just go it alone, to just stay in your routines. And so comes the Sabbath and says, no, defy your nature. Defy your nature to, to eat alone or to just eat with the people that you normally eat with in typical ways that you're just not aware of each other or present to each other. Or you got the phones at the table. So turn that table into a consciousness raising exercise right now, still in the kind of tail end, hopefully at the end of COVID. We all appreciate, I think, the power, the, the centrality of community, of relationship, having not had those for too long. Then you have them again and you say, wow, I get to be with my parent. I get to be with my child. I get to be with my friend. I get to be with my neighbor and a whole new light, a whole new way. However, there's still a piece of us, and maybe especially now in COVID, that um, is now patterned to being alone. I see it with my 10-year-old. I was thinking about this the other day. So that, what, we're coming up on three years of COVID. He's 10. Do the math. That's 30% of his life that's been spent in social upheaval, um, a lot of that time being alone, you know, not necessarily physically alone. There were six of us in this house, but nobody close to his age. And the one or two close to his age were girls who were teenage girls who didn't want to play with their little brother. You know, so I did my best. Ariella did her best. But he spent a lot of time alone. It's not so easy for him to socially transition back into a semi-normal world. And it's only semi-normal because like every other week, there's this, that, or the other that he has to deal with in his little life, his young life around COVID and the social implications. And I can see his nature is now to say no to invitations to other people's table or to invite people to our table. And so he's got to defy that. How did I get here? With bread? Well, because bread represents something very profound and deep in consciousness raising and defying our spirit. You know, bread was not made to be um, eaten alone. We, we, we must 
We must invite people to our table, literally, figuratively, and at a much deeper level. I want to come back to Frankel because one of the things I was thinking about is with bread. Um, it is so primal. When this woman was talking in my group, I just really hit me like how primal bread is. And it's one of the defining examples of Dr. Frankel in um, the Holocaust. He uses it for one of his most famous quotations. I'm going to share with you. I've shared this so, so many times. Um, but I'm going to share it again. Let me just find it here. So he talks about sharing this bread as the ultimate choice. He says the following. I don't have the page number, but it's in Man's Search for Meaning. So does man or woman, you know, you fill in the blank as you see fit. I just read like he writes. Does man have no choice of action in the face of circumstances? We can answer these questions. And he was talking about, of course, circumstances of the Holocaust, extreme circumstances where it might appear we have no choice. He says we can answer these questions from experience as well as on principle. The experience of camp life show that man does have a choice of action. There were enough examples, often of a heroic nature, which proved that apathy could be overcome, irritability suppressed. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom, of independence of mind, even in such terrible uh, conditions of psychic and physical stress. Here it is, famous passage. We who lived in, a concentra in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting other, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And there were always choices to make every day. Every hour offered the opportunity to make a decision, a decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom, which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity to become molded into the form of the typical inmate. End quote. So, you know, Dr. Frankel talks about the ultimate expression of freedom in the camps, not as a macro issue, but as a micro issue, the most micro issue, somebody's bread. In multiple places in Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about having um, bread or not having bread, food in general, but bread is tends to be the thing he talks about most when talking about food. But it became an obsession, of course. I mean, he, he, he talks about how they lost their entire sex drive. I don't know many people who have zero sex drive. I know people who have a little sex drive. But he talks about a zero sex drive. Why? Because you need food. And you just get to a point, I can imagine, where nothing else matters except the next meal. And he talks about dreaming about it and obsessing over it. And he, he says that one of the most maddening things in the camp was that so much time was, was spent between inmates talking about such mundane, ordinary, seemingly ordinary things. It's only ordinary if you have them. When you don't have them, it's pretty extraordinary. And he was so tired of it, but he too participated in it because basic needs and the nature, his nature said, right, feed me, feed me, feed me all day, every day. But he talks about men and women, examples who defied that power. And I'm not just talking about I missed lunch, I missed dinner. 
I read an interesting quote a few months ago, maybe a year ago. I forgot who it was. It was like in New York Times or something. But it basically said we are always as a society only ever four missed meals away from pandemonium, from chaos, from riots. Four missed meals. And I would have thought that that was laughable, except I've seen it too many times now. I saw it when I was in Boston living there and there was a hurricane, <laughs> shut down power. Um, and there was um, the, the water um, system was compromised and there was a run on supermarkets of bottled water and there were literally fistfights. And this was within 24 hours of the announcement. Nobody was dying of thirst, but it brought out the worst in human nature. But that's the point. Lots of things will bring out the worst in our human nature. It doesn't mean we're bad for having the nature for wanting to hoard the toilet paper. It's a natural response. Uh, toilet paper is different than water. But nonetheless, human nature is what it is. And that's fear. Our nature is fear. I don't believe people are born bad. I do believe people are born afraid. And I do believe from a Kabbalistic mystical perspective that fear is where the system breaks down, that fear is where we start to react. Fear and, and, and making decisions based on fear or not making decisions and reacting in fear leads from one bad decision to another to another. And pretty soon our nature has led us down the path of being bad. I was counseling somebody years ago who kept telling me all the bad things they do, but that they're not a bad person. At which point I said, honestly, I don't know what that means. To call yourself not a bad person, you just do bad things, to me is just semantics because at some level we are what we do. I've tried to instill this in my kids. You know, I do believe you have a good heart, but when you kicked your sister in the face, I don't really care about your good heart. I care about your bad foot. And so did she. And so we got to deal with your bad foot and we got to deal with your bad choices. At the end of the day, it's meaningless to say somebody's a good person who does bad things. Um, our nature, all of us, is fear. Is fear bad? It absolutely is not bad. A child is, a baby is not bad for being afraid. Animals are not bad for being in fear. But I don't revere babies or animals. I deeply appreciate them. And, but I don't raise them up. Sometimes I hear people raising up babies as to the pinnacle of goodness. And I will say they are the pinnacle of innocence, but they are not the pinnacle of goodness. To be good means you contribute constructively to the world. Babies do their job, which is to get their needs met, but they don't go out and feed the, the homeless and, um, you know, contribute in some constructive way. So... They have to, they have to, and you know what, <clears throat> frankly, babies and toddlers are some of the most selfish people I know. Again, filling their purpose, rightly so. But why do we say to them a thousand times, say thank you, say thank you, don't kick your brother, right? Because we're trying to teach them how not to do bad, how to do good, how to overcome their nature, your nature is to burp in public or to, you know, uh, other bodily emissions in public. What do we teach kids? Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. We need to teach some adults too. You don't do that. Why? It's my nature. 
I, I have people say this to me all the time, but it's my authentic self. This is how I want to show up and I want to just be my authentic self. I think we've overrated authentic self. We don't say that in the realm of, um, of personal hygiene. Hey, it's my authentic self. I don't care if I smell. Deal with it, honey. Deal with it, colleagues. No. What do you say to somebody who hasn't showered? I call them teenagers, right? <clears throat> young teenagers, older teenagers, they overshower. But young teenagers, like uh, my or preteens, my, my youngest, right? he's a boy, he hates showering. It's like, when did he, that was the last time Aviv showered? Um, like, what month is it? So, and his, and his siblings have no problem telling him, hey, kid, you smell, go take a shower. Nothing personal, Aviv. Every single 10 year old boy I know goes through this. Um, but he could argue, argue and say, but this is who I am. It's my authentic smell. In which case we say, well, you know, go cover up your authenticity with uh, some Dove soap. So yes, should we strive to be our authentic self in a deeper, more spiritual, truthful way? To some degree, yes. But then there comes times when we can't be our authentic self. I'm in a bad mood and I come home from work, which is hard because I work from my home these days. I say to kids, you know, deal with my bad mood. I, of course I can say that. And of course, people around you need to make concession and give you space to be your natural, authentic self at times. But no, I, I grew up in a home where basically my dad's nature was gloom, doom, and, and anger. He never took it out on us in a physical way. He was a good dad, um, but he did let it overcome him. He did, he did basically say oftentimes, especially like on vacations, it's my nature without saying that, and this is who I am, and I'm in a bad mood, so you're going to be affected by it. As opposed to, hey, I stink. I got to go wash up. I don't want to, but I got to. Same is true with our mood, right? Standing guard against dumping it on other people. My nature might be to, this is who I am and what I'm going through, so you deal with it, buddy, kid, spouse, whatever. It's a fine line. I, do, I believe deeply and being honest and dealing with the shadows and, and, and sharing our nature at the appropriate time with the appropriate person. But I also believe in confronting our nature, defying our nature. This is the defiant power of the human spirit and not just chalking it up to, this is who I am, this is my struggle. We don't do that with alcohol, right? It's just who I am. We'll have an intervention. We understand it's who you are, but it's also destroying you and your family and the people around you. And so we must help step in and find ways to defy your nature. We should do this in all kinds of areas and not just the obvious addictions. Um, phone. This is a big one in our day and age, right? I need to check my phone. Um, happened to me a while back, went out to lunch with somebody. And during the course of an hour, I think they checked their phone I don't know, 20 times. It was enough that it felt like to me they were out of control, that they have given over their nature to a feeding frenzy on the phone, right? I just couldn't accept it. I said to them, you know, you invited me out to lunch and I want to be here with you, but it doesn't feel like you want to be with me. And we talked about the nature of their phone and their addiction. And what we ended up talking about was defying that natural reaction to go to the phone to pick it up. I deal with this with my kids all the time. I don't even think we've begun to realize the consequences of our social media screen-oriented society for all of us, but especially for young, uh, impressionable, 
minds and forming brains and personalities in our kids and our teenagers on their phones. And so, you know, I work very hard with Ariella to help them learn how strategies to defy their nature. Okay, you want to pick up your phone, but do you, should you pick up your phone, right? And just because you want something, should you engage it? This is the work of the defiant spirit. Just because I want a 16th cookie, welcome to my addiction, um, does it mean I need that cookie? Does it mean sometimes if even if I, it's not going to affect me physically, which it will, but even if it didn't, I don't want to live my life subservient to anything or anyone, including my nature. And my nature says, go to the fridge and look in there even when you're not hungry. I really work on standing guard against that. Sometimes it's a victory. Oftentimes it's a defeat. But I think coming back and confronting my nature, not just saying, hey, it's the way I'm wired. I'm just wired for gossip. This is a big one. I, I think we so easily can take these other areas of our life and not see how we just give into our nature. Ah, it's just, you know, it's no big deal. I just, I talk about other people to, to my friends or, or ingratitude, right? I'm just, I'm, I'm a pessimistic person. I just don't see the cup half full. And so that's just who I am as opposed to no, I know I have that penchant, that nature, and I'm going to look at it. I'm going to confront it. I'm going to defy it. I'm going to overcome my pessimism. Do I think somebody who seems to be wired for pessimism can become optimistic? Yes, within degrees. I don't expect that there'll be kind of this like, you know, bubble gums and rainbows and, you know, unicorn type uh, happy, joyous and optimistic. But I do think we are um, creatures of habit and we can ingrain within ourselves these positive forming habits to defy our nature. It's why every morning the first words out of a Jew's mouth are supposed to be moda, moda. There's a longer line, but I don't think it's important. Moda or moda means toda, means thank you. Wake up saying thank you. What's the alternative? Hit the snooze button. I didn't get enough sleep. I, I'm, I'm tired. I, I, you know, you wake up with the sense of lack of not having enough, and that goes into, and I don't like my job, and I don't have enough money, and I don't have enough fill-in-the-blank, and then there's this whole um, degeneration. Your day is just downhill from there, as opposed to standing guard against it. Maybe my nature is to wake up and fetch, as we say, complain. I'm going to stand guard. I'm going to notice it. I'm going to replace it with simple thank you. And when I catch myself during the day, I'm going to just say thank you instead. I do this too. I have a natural tendency to bitch and moan, especially in the COVID, everybody's at home reality. I got to catch myself. Oftentimes, Ariella will catch me and say, well, what's the, the upside of having such a messy house? I got a lot of kids, thank God, running around this house. There's a lot of vitality. There will come a day when that's not true. And there'll be another set of blessings involved with that. I do look forward to those blessings. But the point is, is we don't get to chalk up who we are to our nature because the truth of the matter is our nature sometimes stinks, oftentimes stinks, and we must face it. We must confront it. I'm not telling you to live your life lying. I'm not telling you to live your life defining yourself by other people and their needs and their expectations. And if they don't like it, you got to change it. Chasva um, shalom, as we say, God forbid, but don't take that as the takeaway. What I am saying, coming back to Frankel, is that 
every ounce of us may want to take hold of that bread, to eat it, to engage our, our desire, even our rightful desire. And then I think the real work of maturity, of spiritual evolution, is to look at it, to become conscious of it, and to make a choice. Do I want to eat this bread or do I want to give away this bread? When we enter into that space, we've already defied our nature. Even if we eat that bread, even if we make that Amazon purchase and that's our addiction, even if we end up, God forbid, falling off the wagon and drinking a drink, there's a higher level of consciousness and we'll have to climb back on the wagon again and again and again. But better to live our lives eyes wide open and honest and facing our nature than to shut our eyes, to live a life on autopilot, in reaction, succumbing to our nature. It's a battle, and you have to do battle. As I'm studying Buddhism right now, I'm reminded of how much imagery there is in doing battle. Lots of the the deity figures in the Hindu and the Buddhist tradition are carrying swords as a reminder. Um, I forgot the deity. Pranamaya, I can't remember it, but the deity carries a sword in one hand, I think it's a flower in the other, right? There are times when we just need that sword to defy our nature, and it is a battle, and it can be brutal. No matter what you are dealing with, no matter what addiction you are dealing with, no matter what your nature is, it can be defied. This is the work of the defiant spirit. I'm going to go back and end with that because it's just so important. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men, women who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a person but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. That's what this is about. Choosing your way, not living a life in reaction, but becoming responsible, response-able, able to respond to your life. And sometimes it's about what happens out in the world and all of those circumstances, but more often than not, it's what happens on the inside of us, and it comes down to our nature. Do we react from this place of nature and to our nature, or do we start responding, becoming responsible and response-able around our nature? That's the work of the defiant power of the human spirit. Until the next time, keep living your defiant power of spirit. Shalom, salam, namaste. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Spirit Podcast. I would love to hear from you, to get to know you, to set up a discovery call, to see how we might work together. I work with clients across the world by phone or Zoom to discover deeper meaning and greater purpose at what I call life's tees. Tests, transitions, trials, traumas, tragedies. If you're at one of life's tees and you're looking for deeper meaning and greater purpose, then please reach out to me and I can help you discover, awaken, and live the defiant power of your spirit. Until we meet, shalom, salam, namaste, peace.